what is compassionate, gracious, and loving. We are indeed free to be who you made us to be. We are free to come to you as we are with anything. We are free to come to you in prayer as we do this morning. We come praying for those whose freedom means they serve to protect our freedom, guard our men and women serving in harm's way, wherever duty may call them. Make them good and wise, cautious, truthful, and caring. We come praying for our nation's leaders that they'll be wise in your ways for not only our nation, but all nations. May they be truthful in their conviction and compassionate. Give them the courage to do what is right rather than what is expedient. Courage to set aside their own self-interest in order to love justice, mercy, and truth for all. Make us mindful that we are a people of your heavenly kingdom and also citizens of this earthly nation. Help us not to confuse our loyalties. For those today in need of healing, we pray for you to heal them. Encourage their caregivers. For those in need of comfort in the midst of grief, we ask for peace, consolation, and hope. For the isolated and lonely, we pray for your companionship and for the friendship of others. For victims of disasters, earthquakes, floods, and most recently the people of Mississippi and the storms they endured, we pray your protection and provision. And for the people that you will send to care for them in your name, we pray also. We pray for the church that you would give us moral strength, spiritual wisdom, and persistent faithfulness to live and act and to be lights in this world's darkness. We pray for those within our own church body who are in need. The needs are many and varied, and you know each need. May your people act as the body of Christ as we're called to be. May we be sensitive to the needs of others and act to meet those needs. And we pray for Keith and Lori this morning as they spend time in Texas with Matthew. Watch over them in their travels. May their time be joy-filled. We ask that you would bring them safely home to us. We pray for all who are traveling this weekend. Watch over them and protect them. As we go now to your word, we ask that the Spirit might give us eyes to see and ears to hear of the riches of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to fool you this morning. I know you're expecting me to tell you to turn to Exodus, aren't you? Well, we're going to go to um, Luke chapter 4. We will indeed, this will come as no surprise to you, be looking at the Old Testament. Not, not Exodus. So this morning we're going to begin in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus has come home to his own people, only to be rejected. Hear God's word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so ends the reading of God's word. I want you to put your imagination to work this morning. If you have to close your eyes, that's fine. But I want to Im- you to imagine... You're an Israelite during the Babylonian exile over 2,500 years ago, standing down on the banks of the Euphrates River. And you look downstream and you see two priests and a small crowd of people about to perform a ceremony before a strange-looking carving. The people you are watching are about to consecrate a small stone statue of one of their gods. You wonder, how are a few magical words by these pagans going to give life to this block of stone? You know immediately it's a false god. It's an idol. You know full well that these people can't chant and murmur. They could chant and murmur all day, and at the end of the day, it's still a block of stone with no power. You might be an Israelite in exile, but you still know who the true God is. You still know he has commanded you not to worship false gods. And most of all, you know that things exactly like this among your own people and many other transgressions against God and his law are the very reasons that you are now standing on the banks of the Euphrates River instead of back in your homeland. You're captive to Babylon. And as you continue to watch, you notice something. You begin to recognize faces. Your friends, childhood friends, people that as a child you played tag with in the streets of Jerusalem as your parents prepared for the seasonal feast to honor God. But now those streets lie in ruins. The children have grown up and began to follow the Babylonian gods, thinking that Yahweh has forgotten them. You remember how just 49 years before the walls burned, you along with your family, roughly gathered up by the invading Babylonian soldiers and carted off with all you own, left behind and destroyed. Lifelong friendships ended. You've gone to a land you've only heard of. The Babylonians were not kind invaders, much like the Assyrians. They had a reputation for unsurpassed cruelty. 
in spite of this, for the last 49 years, you and your family struggled to be true to God. And you continued to worship in new small congregations called synagogues. The temple had been destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant lost. But you kept your prayers by the old hours of the sacrifice. But maybe now they seem superficial. Where is God in all this suffering? How could God forget His own people? How long would they cry and suffer before He would hear them? And just when it seemed like there was no hope, no reason anymore to believe in this Yahweh, God's sovereign hand is at work. And the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persian Medes. And a new ruler, Cyrus, issues a decree. You can go back home. Go back to where you belong. Probably exactly how the Israelites felt when a prophet who had experienced the fall with them, who had been a part of the exile, began proclaiming a seemingly impossible hope. God had not forgotten Israel. God had not abandoned them. Israel had been unfaithful for generation after generation after generation, following other gods, relying on the benefit of political alliances with other empires, and it finally caught up with them. The exile wasn't just punishment. It was justice. Justice for their lack of faithfulness, for the mistreatment of orphans, widows, and the poor among them, even resident aliens. The sins of the people were many, and they were vile in the sight of God. The God who had given them everything He had promised. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land much like a garden. He gave each tribe and each family a plot of land that they could live on. They could raise their families on. Make a living from the land. And yet, the religious leaders... And even the kings bowed down and worshipped the Baals in direct violation of God's commandment. Some Israelites became rich. Others became poor. They became destitute, were taken advantage of by their own kinsmen. Their land was taken. Their children were sold off as slaves. Some turned to Baal, temple prostitutes, or even worse. The destitute often had to sell themselves into bondage to repay their debts. You see, there was no bankruptcy court in those times. There was no second chance. The debt, whether your fault or not, had to be paid. All of this in violation of God's explicit commands to care for one another. Commands that were so important to Him that He threatened violent expulsion from the land if the people failed to keep His commands. And that's where our character in this imaginary story is. And now here's this prophet Isaiah telling us things far too good to be true. How can it be possible? We've broken God's law over and over and over. He couldn't possibly still love us. He couldn't possibly still want to be our God and for us to be His people. It's just too much to hope for. Who could ever forgive us for what we've done? Surely not Yahweh. 
isn't he, after all, the one who sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians to destroy our holy city, to destroy the temple, to destroy the Ark of the Covenant, to send us into exile? And you ask yourself, what about me? I tried to be faithful. You heard my story earlier. I tried to follow God's commands. I was good to my neighbor. I was good to the sojourners in the land. I observed most of the religious customs and laws. I observed the Sabbath, well, most of the time. I honored my father and mother, well, usually. But there was that time I got so angry at Dad. There was that time I told Mom, well, I've been gone all day and I was doing this. When the reality was you were doing something you knew you shouldn't be doing. And there's another time when I... And there's another time when I... And then there's the time that I... And I stood and watched as my own brothers bowed down to a foreign god on the banks of the Euphrates River. I didn't do anything. I stood there and gawked at them, thinking to myself, what fools. But I didn't go and remind them of God's commands to his people. I didn't go and remind them that what they were doing was part of why we were now captives. I didn't go to them and remind them that God loved them so much and cared so much for them. I just stood there and watched. I'm no better than my people. I might not have sold my children into slavery. I didn't visit any temple prostitutes. I don't think I ever worshipped any idols. Oh, I know I didn't sacrifice to false gods. But I'm just as guilty in God's eyes. Woe is me. My sins before you are many. A man of unclean lips. A truth from Scripture. God's love far outweighs His justice. Indeed, His justice is a manifestation of His love. He would not hold Israel to her sins forever. What was it exactly the prophet Isaiah said to these people to give them so much hope? The answer is found in Isaiah 61. Listen and hear God's word to his people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, 
the planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. And they shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of many generations. Isaiah is talking about exactly what Cyrus has told the people. Go back home. Rebuild your city. Rebuild your temple. Worship your God. Verse 2 says, Vindication lasts for a day, but the Lord's favor is proclaimed for a year. And as a fulfillment of God's eternal loving kindness, His Holy Spirit will rest with His conqueror. Israel's restoration would be accomplished. The Anointed One appears over and over in the pages of Scripture. From beginning to end. Over and over in the prophets. In the first chapters of Isaiah, he's portrayed as a long-awaited king. In chapters 52 and 53, he's the suffering servant who takes on the sins of the people and atones for them. And the suffering servant will return triumphant. In doing so, he will replace the wasted lands of the exile with ripe fields. He repossesses the destroyed cities. He restores the people. And in fact, the language Isaiah uses to describe this process directly reflects something called the Jubilee year as ordained in Leviticus chapter 25. Has anybody heard the book of Leviticus recently? I know you have. You see, every, sab- every, every Sabbath year, which occurred every seven years, was declared a Sabbath year. By God, by God's commands. The Israelites were told every Sabbath year to let their fields lay fallow and empty so that the land could rest. But not only the land rested, the people rested. And the people with nothing had access to the land. They could gather food from your land. And that was God's command. And after seven of these Sabbath years, in other words, 49 years, you've heard that phrase, 49 years this morning. They were to proclaim a jubilee in the 50th year with the blast of a trumpet. This was to usher in a time. All debts are forgiven. Israelites who had been sold into slavery to pay their debts were to be released. And all the land that you might have sold to pay your debts now reverted back to you. It was a time of liberty. A time of release, return, restoration, freedom from bondage. This day, this year of Jubilee was to begin on the Day of Atonement. How shocking. It would be signified by a loud blast on a shofar or a ram's horn. It was an announcement to the nation that the year of Jubilee had begun. Imagine what a glorious day that would have been for you 
if you were of the destitute, of the poor, who had lost everything you owned, perhaps even your children, maybe through your own foolishness, maybe through something beyond your control. What a fantastic thing that would have been. Most likely a once-in-a-lifetime event. It only occurred every 50 years. People set free from bondage, land restored. God gives us a little insight as into why he's doing this. You see, the land is God's land. It's not the people's. He sent the people to the land to live in it, to tend to it, to care for it, to glean the riches of the land. But God says, it is my land. And you are my people. Mine. Not Pharaoh's. Not another man's. You are mine. You are my slaves, in fact, God says. You'll be a slave to no other man, to no other God. They belong to God and God alone. This is exactly what Isaiah is looking back to as he prophesies this to the exiles. But he's also looking forward, isn't he? Once again, we're seeing a glimpse of the already not yet in the pages of Scripture. Isaiah looks back to an ancient tradition. He carries it forward to his day and develops it a little fuller. God had given Israel the jubilee for themselves to be celebrated among the broken people of the nation. But now, the jubilee for the nation of Israel comes at the hands of a pagan king. Go back to your land. Go back to the promise. That's what the anointed one is doing in Isaiah 61. Proclaiming a year of favor. Verse 4 says exactly 50 years after the destruction of the first temple. Just as the jubilee was supposed to be celebrated every 50 years. Since the time of Moses. Liberty from captivity, return to ancestral land, forgiveness of debt. Just as a firstborn son was entitled to a double inheritance in the Torah, verse 7 in Isaiah 61 proclaims that God was now going to replace Israel's shame with a double portion of everlasting joy. But there's something deeper going on here. There's a deeper layer to this proclamation than just Israel's return from captivity. Nothing within the scripture occurs as an accident. I have told you repeatedly, everything we see in the Old Testament, Testament is a picture of something to come in the New Testament. Something to come when the eschaton is finally realized. It's no accident that God inspired Isaiah to proclaim this prophecy, not only for the benefit of the nation of Israel, but for all people, present and future. Isaiah hints at this 
with the last verse. As the earth brings forth its plants and a garden makes its growth spring up, so will the Lord God make justice and praise spring up before all the nations. What the people of Israel may not have realized at that time that Isaiah is pointing to the Christ, the long-awaited promised Christ. I want you to notice from our text today in Luke 4, that this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke's gospel. It also just so happens the beginning of this ministry begins on a Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath day when Christ read from the scriptures. That's important. Keep that in mind. And do not let the idea of jubilee wander far from your mind. Or the year of the Lord's favor, if you prefer. The next story in Luke that immediately follows our text finds Jesus in Capernaum. It's another Sabbath day. Jesus was teaching the people in the synagogue. He heals a man while he's there by casting a demon out. And the demons refer to Christ as the Holy One of Israel as they depart. Jesus and his disciples, then they leave the synagogue. They go to Peter's house, and Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, who's suffering from a fever. As the day winds out down, people began to gather around Peter's home, and Jesus heals many and forgives sins. In chapter 6, verse 1, as the ministry moves along, we find Jesus on another, quite possibly the very next Sabbath day. He's with his disciples, and they pick some grain from a field and feed themselves on a Sabbath. This would be a great time to point out that during the year of Jubilee, I'll remind you, the Sabbath years in Jubilee, you didn't harvest your crops. You left them in the field for anyone to partake of. It's exactly what Jesus and his disciples were doing on this Sabbath day. Local Jews, travelers, strangers, the fruits and the grain belong to everybody. And God promised to his people, if you do this, your fields and your vines will produce abundantly if you do this. If they held to the requirements of God's commands. So Jesus and his disciples enjoyed something to eat. And they are confronted by our favorite people, the Pharisees. They accuse Jesus of violating the law by picking grain on the Sabbath. And so Jesus reminds them of a story of David going into the, the temple and eating the consecrated bread. And Jesus leaves them with these words. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Then, our very next text, Jesus on another Sabbath in the synagogue teaching and healing and naturally, the religious folks are furious with Jesus. He's violating the laws of the Sabbath once again. 
And then as the ministry moves on in chapter 13, another Sabbath day. This time Jesus teaching in a synagogue. He heals a woman. Let me read to you the words from that section. From Luke 13, 10 through 15. Well, maybe I'm not going to read that. <laughs> Just know that in Luke 13, he's doing this again. And the religious leaders are they're just upset. You can't be doing this. It's a Sabbath. It seems that the religious leaders have missed the point of Sabbath, doesn't it? The concept of jubilee is nowhere in their mind. They don't understand. They are more concerned about are you observing the rules correctly than what the Sabbath really means. Isn't it odd that these people so concerned about the Sabbath and following all the rules seem to be everywhere that Jesus is at? If they were following the rules, where would they be? They wouldn't be out about the countryside looking to see who they can be critical of for not following the laws. As we move on to Luke 14, now we find Jesus on a Sabbath eating in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Among the other Pharisees present was a guest who had an illness. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, what do you think about healing this guy on the Sabbath? What kind of answer does he get? He doesn't get an answer. He gets silence. Now I'm going to read to you from Luke 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the synagogue. The Pharisees were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. Then he took the man and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Again, silence, no reply. Then he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited to, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him who gave the party. And he will come to both of you and say, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowly place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner... Or a banquet. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And then in Luke 23 as he begins to wrap up his gospel, we see the final Sabbath. Christ has been crucified. 
His body is laid in a tomb because the Sabbath is approaching. Luke's gospel is beginning to come to an end. Anybody counting the number of Sabbaths I mentioned? Seems like the Sabbath is a big deal to Luke. In fact, it's a big deal in each of the Gospels. It's a big deal in the entirety of Scriptures. But I want you to notice something significant about Luke's Gospel. Luke recorded seven Sabbaths. Seven. Is that significant? I think it's hugely significant. Remember how did Jesus begin this public ministry? Reading from Isaiah 61, which points back to the the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Looking backward, looking forward. It's no accident that Jesus read this passage as he began his public ministry. Jesus, too, was looking back to the Jubilee. And he was looking to that day. And he was looking to the future. In fact, he told the people sitting there, this scripture from all these years ago was fulfilled in your presence right now. Jesus, just like Isaiah, had taken the idea of the year of Jubilee and he developed it more fully. That's how biblical theology works. You hear me talk about it all the time. That's a prime example of it at work. He gave the people a picture of what the year of Jubilee was really about. And the picture was becoming more clear. But as Jesus reads the words from Isaiah, the picture is not quite fully developed. Remember the year of Jubilee followed the pattern of seven. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year of year of rest for the land and the people. After seven Sabbath years, or in other words, 49 years, the 50th year was to be the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. But Luke doesn't have another Sabbath. He doesn't put Jesus at another Sabbath. Or does he? See, Luke has shortened the time span of 49 years for us. He showed us seven Sabbaths representing that time. Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, this is following Christ's burial. On the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, the Jubilee. At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But they, when they went in, they did not find the body of our Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men saying to them, Why do you seek the living among 
the dead. And here is where we hear the shofar. He is not here, but he is risen. So the ladies leave and they go tell the disciples and Peter runs. While we don't have an official trumpet blast, we have the announcement. The year of the Lord's favor is here. The Jubilee is here in Christ Jesus. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, people of God have been set free, They've been restored and reconciled. The Sabbath has come, and you are free from the bondage of sin if you belong to Christ. I know some of you might be disappointed that there wasn't a trumpet blast. Oh, Mikey, you had me until right up till then. It's not time for the trumpet blast. The Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Yes, the full jubilee is coming. It's not fully developed for us yet either. It will come at Christ's return. And as fantastic as it must have seemed to the Israelites held captive in Babylon that they would be allowed to return home to be set free, many of them chose not to go back home, not to return to the promise. They elected to stay in the company of their captors. They had become comfortable in the ways of their captors. Some of them did quite well and were rewarded financially for it. They had become people of the world. You and I, brothers and sisters, are exiles in Babylon. We are surrounded by a culture that seeks to devour us like a roaring lion. A world that sees us as odd and out of place. Old-fashioned, stuck in traditions. Exiles who live in a world that says, come to me. I will give it all to you. I will give you every desire you could imagine. You will not ever be satisfied. You will always want more. But come anyway. Let us make your burden heavy and impossible to bear. We must remain as exiles. We must remain strong in the faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must remember that God is faithful to His promises. As old as these promises are, as distant as their reality sometimes seems, the promises 
are true for God's people. And the fulfillment of those promises began many years ago in a land far from our own. You've seen it with your own eyes, the faithfulness of God to His people throughout the pages of Scripture. Understand we have been set free from bondage. But we are called to wait on the Lord's perfect timing. And we're called to obedience. And we're called to be a peculiar people among this world. Stay peculiar. Don't get caught up in the affairs of Babylon as our Israelite friend did at the beginning of our message. Like that character, we will at times fail. We will turn our backs momentarily on His promises and His faithfulness. But He's given His very own life to pay for our transgressions. He has given us His Spirit within each of us to remind us of our poor choices and actions. He's granted us a spirit of repentance that we might turn away from the evil that Babylon tempts us with each day. The Babylon that tells you you're always right. The Babylon that tells you do whatever your wicked heart desires. The Babylon that tells you to lighten up. Enjoy all that she has to offer you. You can cling to Babylon or you can cling to Christ. You cannot do both. Cling to Him. We don't worship a cross as Reformed peoples. We worship the Savior on the cross. Hold on with all your heart, your mind, your body, and your soul. The Jubilee does await us. And our triumphant King will return once again with the sound of a trumpet blast. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we might spend some time learning from it. We pray that you might write these truths on our hearts and minds. In Christ's name.